thought it would be a good time to just review the basics. Review the core disciplines of our lives together as Christians and as members of this church. Disciplines such as prayer and the study of God's word and fellowship with one another. They're essential disciplines. We take them for granted a lot. It's good to stop and revisit them because without them we can't flourish, we can't grow. This morning's emphasis is going to be on prayer. And we're going to look at prayer from a different angle, one you may not have considered. I'm going to review a story in the Old Testament that you've heard you heard in Sunday school, you've heard all your life, but you probably never thought of a, about it as a lesson on prayer. It's the story of Jonah. Before we go there, go ahead and open to Jonah. If you don't have Bibles, I don't know, if you don't, you could raise your hand and uh, we'll have some ushers put one in your hand. Jonah happens to be in the latter part of the Old Testament. It's kind of two-thirds of the way through. It's a tiny little book. It's only got four chapters, 48 verses. And if you skim through too far, you'll pass over it. If you get to Malachi or Matthew, you've gone too far. Swing back a few pages and you'll find it. But there's a lesson to Jonah, and we'll get to that. One of the lessons is Prayer is vital, and essentially, as we're going to see and as Jonah learned, we're going to learn that prayer, that we are to pray like our life depends upon it, because it really does. So turn to me, turn with me to the Old Testament book of Jonah and follow along as I review the story, starting in chapter 1 just to catch us up and remember this familiar story. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. First he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship that was going to Tarshish, not to Nineveh. And he paid the fare and went down into the ship. Notice Jonah's going down to Joppa, down into the ship. He's not going where he should. He pays the fare and he goes to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, just what was old Jonah up to, anyway? God came to him with a word, gave him clear direction and a job to do this way. But rather than respond to God or even acknowledge him, Jonah turned and fled. And he did so without saying a word, without even saying hi. If ever there was a time to pray, to talk to God, 
This would be it. The Almighty was standing there talking directly to him in his comfort zone, in his own surroundings. And yet, not a peep from the prophet. What gives, Jonah? What are you doing? Instead of talking to the Lord and doing what he says, you go and jump on a boat and pay for a cruise headed in the exact opposite direction of where God told you to go. You ran away and hid. Don't you know that hiding from the Almighty is not such a good idea? For as verse 4 says, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship that Jonah's on threatens to break up. And the sailors were afraid, and each of them cried out to their God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down even further into the inner part of the ship and lay down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps your God will give a thought to us that we might not perish. But once again, not a peep from Jonah. While his ship was tossed and turned at sea, he just sat there groggily wiping the crust from his eyes and did nothing. If ever there was a time to pray, this would be it. A storm threatening your life. Nothing came from the lips of the prophet. And in verse 7, the story continues. The sailors say to one another, Come, let's cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and a lot fell on, you guessed it, Jonah. They said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What? Is your occupation? Where do you come from? So Jonah finally opens his mouth and says something. Not to God, but to these sailors. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them he was doing that. They said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Wouldn't prayer sound like the right thing to do right now, Jonah? Wouldn't this be a good time to ask God for some help, some guidance? After all, you have a captive audience. But rather than pray, Jonah said to them, Pick me up, hurl me down into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And then skipping down to verse 15, they picked up Jonah. They hurled him into that sea. And the sea 
immediately ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. These pagan sailors had just been saved. They just encountered the Lord, and they're praying. They're worshiping. (laughs) Not Jonah. Even at this point, the man of God doesn't pray. Even as he sank into the depths of the sea, as low as he can go, he refused to cry out to his God. But, That did not deter the Lord his God. God was about to get his man exactly where he wanted him. It would still be a few more days before he'd hear a response. But the Lord was about to hear what he was longing to hear all along. A heartfelt prayer from the lips of Jonah. Let's pick it up in chapter 1, verse 17, and read to the end of chapter 2. This will be our primary text for this morning. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of shale I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I... But the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish. And it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. You see, Jonah finally prayed. Like his life depended upon it. And it's pretty clear that God heard his prayer. And God saved him from his stubbornness. And turned his life around. As he went on to obey God. This time. 
starting in chapter 3. But rather than go on to those chapters, let's stop here and look at this particular prayer. Let's learn from Jonah and his prayer. Let's see what lessons we can take away and apply from his misadventure. The first lesson we can learn is respond to him. Respond to God. Respond to him, you might ask? Isn't prayer an attempt to get God to respond to us? Isn't that why we pray? To get his attention and request things from him? To say, looky here, God. I could use some help right now. Please, take some time out of your busy universe runningness to throw me a bone or toss me some scraps from your table or just to show me some love. Isn't God the one who's supposed to be responding to us when we pray? You might think that. I've thought that. You might even interpret the first verse of Jonah's prayer to mean that. Just look at what it says. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. God, you're responding to me. I cried, you respond. Look again. Actually, remember what we just read in chapter 1. Really, why is Jonah praying now? Who initiated this conversation? It was actually initiated back in chapter 1, verse 1. Because that's where God came and spoke to him, expecting a response at that time. And then when Jonah, Jonah did not respond, he runs down to Joppa, down into the boat, goes to sea, and God pursues him in the form of a great wind. Just to remind him, hey, Jonah, I'm still here, waiting. Nothing. And then... When Jonah gets tossed into the sea, he's still not praying. And that's when God appoints that big fish to swallow him up as he's sinking into the sea. You see, the Lord was the one who initially called Jonah, who pursued Jonah, and who ultimately rescued him from death with that fish. It was the Lord who, in effect, initiated the conversation and then waited and waited and waited for Jonah to respond. He even provided living arrangements in the belly of a big fish for three days and three nights, all the while patiently waiting for his man to come to his senses and start talking to him, to start praying. And so it is with us. God calls us. He's speaking to us all the time. He pursues us. He rescues us circumstance by circumstance. He even designs our situations, both good and bad, to get us to the place where we finally see our need for him and start crying out to him and start talking with him. In other words, he gets us to the place where we start responding to him in prayer. You see, prayer 
is an, basically an exhaling. God breathes his word in. We have to respond. Jonah's been holding his breath for a very long time. Let us not do what he did. This brings us to another lesson that we can learn from Jonah's prayer. Namely, that when we talk to God, let's be real with him. Let's tell him like it is. Let's not put up a front and pretend we've got it all together. Because none of us do. Even though Jonah proclaimed in verse 3 that he, it was the Lord who cast him into the deep, into the heart of the seas, notice that Jonah doesn't seem to have a problem with that statement. Notice his tone. There's not a hint of anger. There's not a, how dare you do such a thing, God, charged to any of his words. Rather, he's just telling God like it is, in very humble tones. It's almost as if he knows he deserves what he's going through and that God has every right to treat him this way. Let's listen to verse 3 which is basically Jonah recalling his moments. Initially, after getting tossed overboard three days ago, he describes the struggle this way. The flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. He's on the surface bobbing, and waves are slapping him down as he's trying to struggle to maintain breath. This poetically captures what Jonah was feeling as he fought for his life in that moment. And after he slips below the surface of the water and everything around him gradually fades to black, as he's looking up and seeing that light just shrink the surface of the water till it's not there anymore. His prayer grows you would think his prayer would grow darker and more hopeless. He doesn't see even light anymore. Yet, what does he say in verse 4? I'm driven away from your sight. I can't see you. I'm being driven away. I'm, I'm going down, down, down. Darker, darker. Yet at the end of verse 4, Something surprising comes out of his lips. Yet, I shall again look upon your holy temple. That's surprising. Why would he think that? He's drowning. He's alone. He's dark. And yet, he says, I shall again look upon your holy temple. Where did he get that hope from? Where did he discover such confidence in such a moment of despair? Apparently, Jonah knew his God well. He had faith in his God. And simply by praying, by rehearsing what he was going through honestly before him, simply by talking to God and being real with him, Hope was coming back to him. He was remembering, it's not over. It's not over for me. There's more. 
He might have been in the dark at that moment, but he knew God would let him someday again look into his holy temple. And then he goes to another refrain in the next two verses that are even darker, if you will. And it has the same pattern. He exposes, he, he revisits his situation. Listen to what he says in verse 5, chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. The waters, they closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains, the very bottom of the sea. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Oh, Lord, my God. But you brought me up from the pit. These verses speak of Jonah's impending death. He knows he's at a place of no return. He's at the bottom of the ocean. He's got weeds holding him there. He's going nowhere. He's at the place of no return. Death is certain. And yet even at that point, he's got hope. It's not over. Because God had other plans. God had Jonah right where he wanted him. In his moment of deepest, darkest despair, God had a fish perfectly prepared to rescue Jonah. And he sent that fish to swoop down to the bottom of the ocean and swallow the prophet and lift up his life from the pit. In one fell swoop, Jonah was saved. But of course, he had to endure another three days and nights of silence solitary confinement inside that big, smelly fish belly. But the worst had passed. Now he was able to do something else we can learn from him. He was able to remember him, remember his God. And verse 7 speaks of this. It says it explicitly. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. It took a while, but Jonas travails, and God's rescue of him in the midst of those travails got him thinking about the Lord again. He was no longer ignoring God, fleeing from God, running from God, avoiding him at every turn. Now he was remembering the Lord. He was thinking about him as a person. He wasn't just looking to him as a purveyor of good deeds and a giver of gifts and a treasure trove of promises, although he is that, and those are all very good things. But rather, he was remembering the Lord's character. He was recounting his attributes. He was reveling in his innate goodness to him in that moment. to keeping him alive. In short, he was worshiping the Lord again. You see, prayer 
is much, much more than giving God a honeydew list. Yes, we can request specific blessings from God, and we should. It's good. In fact, all manner of requests are encouraged. I mean, if you recall the Lord's Prayer, several of those lines are requests. Give us this day our daily bread. Deliver us from evil. Those are requests. But making requests of God is not all that prayer is. Prayer is also a means of communing with God, of giving thanks to God, of worshiping Him for who He is. In fact, when we sing and when we worship, that's actually a form of prayer. When you think about it, the more we mature in the Lord, the more we actually do this. We actually worship God for who He is. We love Him as a person and desire to commune with Him. The more we just want to talk with Him and just enjoy His company. Let me give you an example that might clarify this, help bring it home. Consider how little children often interact with their parents. Usually they only approach them when they need stuff and ask for it, beg for it, pitch a temper tantrum for it. And as they're interacting, they rarely share any personal concern in the well-being of their parental units. They just come to get what they want, leave as soon as they get it, oftentimes without even saying thanks. But as they mature, hopefully, children begin to approach their parents a little differently rather than just looking to them as a personal supply warehouse. They tend to show more interest in their well-being. They're more inclined to spend quality time with their loved ones and to get to know them and love them better. Sometimes they do this without even asking for anything. So it is with prayer. The more you grow in the Lord, the more you love Him for who He is and not just for what He brings to the table. And Jonah's prayer, curiously, seems to fall more in the I love you for who you are category than the please get me out of here category. If you look at this prayer closely, you will not find a single request in the prayer of Jonah. He doesn't ask for anything explicitly. Not once does Jonah ask directly for relief from his distress. And boy, he was in it. Not once does he ask to be removed from the belly of the fish. And you know that wasn't a pleasant experience. Not once does he make any explicit request. Rather, he just remembers his Lord. As we'll see in later verses, he rejoices in his Lord and he vows to serve his Lord. And according to verse 7, he seems rather happy that his prayer has just made it all the way to the holy temple where God lives. He's content with that. But then there comes verse 8. And another lesson to learn from Jonah's prayer. I'll call it repent of your sin. Verse 8 stands out as a different request, a different prayer, a different statement than anything else in this, this prayer. Not only in this prayer, in this book. 
Verse 8 is generally considered the most important statement in the entire book of Jonah. It simply reads, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. There's a lesson in there. This is essentially the lesson of the book of Jonah. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. What is this lesson teaching us? Well, it's not that hard to figure out if you think about it. Those who pay regard to vain idols, they're worshiping idols. Those who hope in the steadfast love the Lord gives them, they're worshiping God. And worship of idols and worship of the Lord are incompatible. If one pays regard to or follows hard after vain idols, they cannot simultaneously place their hope in God's steadfast love. Or let's Jesus weigh in on this for us. Jesus has a, a, a clearer explanation in Luke 16, 13. This is the same thing as Jesus saying, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Those who have received God's steadfast love forsake that love when they look to something else as a substitute for it. When they do look elsewhere, as Jonah apparently did, and as Jonah puts it, they are regarding vain idols. Or more literally, they are keepers of empty vapors. If you went to the original, that's what it means. Not even the word idol doesn't show up. It's just breath, vapors. They're essentially giving their lives to nothingness, stuff that just vanishes quickly. Now this, the curious thing about this verse is the way Jonah states it. He doesn't say that he himself is guilty of such sin. He's using the third person, you notice that? Those other people who regard vain idols forsake their steadfast love. He doesn't explicitly confess the sin for himself. Yet clearly, he has forsaken the one who poured out his steadfast love for him through his own blatant disobedience. So clearly, Jonah is speaking of what he's done as a pursuit of a vain idol or a vapid emptiness. You see, Jonah actually had an idol. He had an idol that many of us actually have in our culture. His idol was himself. What was most important to Jonah weren't the idols of the sailors or the idols of the city of Nineveh that he's going to preach to in the next chapter. He had one big idol that was competing with his steadfast love from God. That was himself. He was fleeing from God because God wasn't operating according to Jonah's agenda. God wasn't doing what Jonah wanted him to do, and Jonah did not like it. Instead, he tried to pick up his toys and go home. But in the end, God's steadfast love pursued him and won him back and changed his heart. Even though he didn't explicitly confess so in his prayer, Jonah's attitude of thanksgiving in the next verse, at the end of this prayer, 
and his subsequent acts of obedience, because right after this, he goes straight to Nineveh to do what God told him to do. That action in itself indicates that he actually repented. Because repentance is actually evidenced by a change in behavior. That's what it means. Repent means change, not just a statement of contrition. And so prayer is a good opportunity to approach God with a contrite heart, like Jonah, and to ask for him to forgive our trespasses, as Christ instructs us to do in the prayer he taught us. And then there's one more lesson we can learn from Jonah. Rejoice in his salvation. The final verse of this prayer talks about this. And the final verse in this prayer, actually, if you think about it, it's a remarkable turn of events. Look what it says. I, Jonah, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. I will repent. I will do what you've said. But right now, I will thank you. I will be grateful. And this is coming from a man who is still cooped up inside a big fish. Remember, Jonah hasn't been delivered from his smelly abode just yet. He's still in the cramped confines of a fish submerged below water. And he's been stuck there for three days and three nights in utter darkness. No lights. He's also soaked to the bone in fluids that aren't pleasant. Yet, yet there, in that place, he's able to rejoice and be thankful for everything God has done for him, which happens to be He's still alive, and he's able to pray. This is a testament of how prayer can change your heart and attitude. What began as a desperate cry to God back in verse 1 and 2 and was followed with frightening recollections of his near-death experience as he's drowning. By the end of the prayer, it's morphed into a jubilant, Song of thanksgiving. Yet nothing has circumstantially changed. Jonah is still in that fish. Yet his heart rejoices. And he also says one more thing. The very last statement of the prayer. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is the other lesson he learned. He learned the lesson that those who forsake, who pay regard to vain idols, forsake their steadfast love. But he also learned that salvation belongs only to the Lord. It comes from no one else. Jonah now knew this very well. After foolishly fleeing from the presence of the Lord, Jonah literally learned this lesson the hard way. Only God could have saved him from death in the sea. Only God could have prepared a big fish to swallow him and 
to patiently wait, keep him alive for three days and three nights. Only God could have penetrated his hard heart and his idol of himself. Yes, salvation belongs to the Lord. It can be accomplished by no one else, and prayer is the vehicle through which it is accomplished, the necessary vehicle. Everyone whom the Lord saves must eventually ask for it, like Jonah. Everyone whom the Lord saves must pray for it. It's required. He breathes upon us. We exhale prayer to him. This is why we must pray as if our life really depends upon it, because it does. And one more thing to note about Jonah's prayer That last phrase, salvation belongs to the Lord. Well, the Hebrew word for salvation just so happens to be Yeshua. And Yeshua just so happens to be the name of the one who would eventually come to save his people from their sin. So when Jonah ended his prayer with salvation belongs to the Lord, he was unbeknownst to him calling upon the name of Yeshua, of Jesus. And as we know from Acts 4.12, there's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the same Jesus who, unlike Jonah, obeyed his call from God thoroughly and completely. This is the same Jesus who, unlike Jonah, died a death he did not deserve to die in order to save sinners like Jonah and you and me. But Jesus did have one thing in common with Jonah. He did spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth and like Jonah he didn't stay in that belly he got raised up in a more glorious way than Jonah I might add he was raised to new life and he now lives at the right hand of God interceding for everyone who calls upon his name praying for everyone who prays to him For one much greater than Jonah is here. One who enables us to pray to the Lord our God as if our lives really depend upon it. And they really do. Let's pray. Oh God, we're so appreciative of your call to us, of you seeking us, of you pursuing us. And we're so grateful that you've sent your son to die for us so you can make our souls alive and they can respond to that call. They can breathe back prayers, requests, thanksgiving, and trust. Lord God, we're grateful for this. And we ask that you teach us and encourage us to pray and pray without ceasing throughout this new year. 
In your powerful name, amen.